If, you're, if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3. While you are turning there, as we're going through this wonderful book of books, let me just put into context what we are about to read about and to learn from in chapter 3. In chapter 1, we read of how Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were turned into, were brought into captivity among the Babylonians. And there were really two major points that we saw in chapter 1. The first has to do with God's sovereignty. If you look at verse 3 or verse 2, for example, even though the scripture tells us that Judah and Jerusalem were delivered into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, nevertheless, it says in verse 2, it was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. The major overarching theme in the book of Daniel is that God is in control of all things. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And while he has oftentimes throughout Israel's history blessed them, here in the book of Daniel we learn that judgment was brought upon his people. And thus he permitted Nebuchadnezzar to take captive, and they would for 70 years, the Jewish people into the land of Babylon. But it was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And secondly, in verse 8, and perhaps the most important verse in all of this book, is the fact of how we ought to respond to God's sovereignty. Verse 8, Daniel resolved in his heart not to defile himself. So for Daniel, he was devoted to live a life that would honor God, though in exile, Though in a context in which he would have preferred not to have been in, he was devoting himself not to defile himself in the environment he was now to find himself in. And these are the two overarching themes of the book of Daniel. God's sovereignty and how we are to respond to him being in control of all things. We are to devote ourselves to him that we would not be defiled by the things of the world. Now, if you look at chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar then has a dream. And we took a look at this dream last week. He saw this huge statue, this huge image. And the statue is made of a variety of metals. The head of the statue is made of gold. The chest and the arms were made of silver. The midriff of this statue was made of bronze or brass. The legs were made of iron. And the feet and toes were made of partly iron and partly clay. That is the edifice that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream. Then he sees a mountain emerge. And out from this mountain, a stone or a rock is cut, though without hands. And this rock bursts upon the toes and feet of the statue. The statue crumbles. As it crumbles, it disintegrates into dust and is blown away like the chaff is blown by the wind. And then that rock grows into a great mountain and becomes a kingdom of all kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar is very disturbed by this dream. It's a dazzling dream. It's a bright image that he sees. It has really struck a chord into his heart, filled him with awe and terror. And none of his wise men can tell him the dream or interpret it for him. 
But Nebuchadnezzar, uh, excuse me, Daniel and his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, pray. And God in his sovereignty reveals to Daniel not only the dream, but also its meaning. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar what I just described that he had seen. But he goes a step further and he tells him what it all means. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the head of gold is representative of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And following on the heels of the Babylonian Empire would be another empire that would be more powerful and stronger than Nebuchadnezzar's and would defeat the Babylonians. He's told that the brass or the copper aspect of this image is a third succeeding empire to be followed by a fourth which is symbolized by these legs of iron. And after these four major empires have run their course, then God's kingdom would be established by destroying the kingdoms of the world. And that destruction would come about by the rock that is cut out without hands. The significance of the rock being cut out without hands suggests that this rock, this one, would be of divine origin, not of human origin. And that this one would be the most powerful ruler to ever rule over the world. This one would be the Messiah of Israel, who throughout Scripture, both in the Hebrew Scriptures and the Brit Hadashah, is referred to as a rock. And that when he comes, he will destroy the kingdoms of the world and establish his own kingdom that would be the greatest of all kingdoms and that which would endure forever. Nebuchadnezzar, at the close of chapter 2, turn with me there for a moment, is dramatically altered by what he is told. In verse 46, we're told in chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar then fell prostrate before Daniel, paid him honor, ordered that an, order, that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal the mystery. Nebuchadnezzar not only expresses this note of praise, but he goes a step further and he elevates Daniel to be a servant in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and then elevates Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as overseers, as it might be, over the wise men, the astrologers, and the counselors of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now in chapter 3, we're not told how long after the events of chapter 2, but they follow the events of chapter 2. And what happens now, and rather than to read through this in all of detail, let me summarize for you these verses. Evidently, though Nebuchadnezzar was moved to fall prostrate before Daniel, and though he was moved to pronounce the God of Daniel as the God of gods and the Lord of all lords, his heart was not changed. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do in chapter 3? He now creates and builds an image reflecting what he had seen in his dream 
that Daniel is able to tell and to interpret. But with one difference. Whereas the kingdoms of the world that were reflected in the dream of the image that Daniel had, which was made up of a variety of metals, gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay, denoting that the, while the empires become more powerful, they qualitatively become much weaker in their nature and in their stature. They're more powerful. Iron is stronger than gold, but it is less valuable as gold is much more precious than iron. The empires of the world gain power, but they lose a sense of values and a sense of rightness and wrongness. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar's not happy with the notion of different metals. Rather, he builds an image out of one metal, out of gold. For this is representative of Babylon. Evidently, Nebuchadnezzar still could not accept the fact that one day his empire would end and would be followed by an empire of silver. So he creates this edifice completely of gold perhaps suggesting that he is defying what God has revealed that one day his empire would fall and rather creates an image denoting the Babylonians as the empire of empires. This image is 90 feet tall. That's the distance, those of you who are in the know, from home plate to first base. It's 90 feet. Those of you not well-versed in baseball, you realize today is the fourth game of the World Series, and, and you ought to be, because it's important stuff. You know, mom, apple pie, baseball is reflective of the United States. 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. So this is a huge statue that Nebuchadnezzar creates. But that's not enough just to have the statue. He then orders all of his musicians, and they're all listed, and you can read them. And when they play, the order is given that everyone should fall prostrate before the statue and worship the gods of Babylon. Now, there are those among Nebuchadnezzar's hierarchy, those among his counselors who are not happy with these Jewish men who have been elevated to a high position and a place of esteem in Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. They are not happy that these Jewish men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are now set up as leaders among the counselors of Babylon. Daniel right in the royal court and the other men serving over the present counselors. So there is a contingent of them that are envious and jealous, and they want to put an end to these men. These men are Jews. They're worshipers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. More than that, they are devoted completely to him. Not all Jewish people are. You can read through the scriptures and see many Jewish people who fell prey to worshiping idols. 
And perhaps there were some in the course of the Babylonians who were doing exactly as, as Nebuchadnezzar commanded. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah would not so bow. Now Daniel is not mentioned in this chapter. Perhaps he is off in another part of the Babylonian kingdom on the king's business. And therefore is not present. And that's why he's not spoken of. We don't know why the text doesn't tell us. But that certainly seems a reasonable conclusion. But these three men who love God are devoted to him. And like Daniel would not defile themselves. Would not bow before this statue. And these other Babylonian leaders saw this as an opportunity to bring them down. So they go before Nebuchadnezzar and they say, there are three men among your counselors who will not do as the king has ordered. They will not bow as you have commanded. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage. Who would defile? Who would fail to be submissive to his will? And when they are brought before the king, he must have noted something unique about them because he gives them a second chance. He tells them that when the music plays, if you'll bow down now, we won't consider what had happened in the past. But these three men didn't care what about the past, let alone the present. They would not bow. And now the king tells them that if you do not bow into a furnace that will be heated extraordinarily, you will be cast. The men respond. We'll take a look at their response. But their response is, there's no way we're bowing. It is the furnace for us rather than to bow before the statue. Nebuchadnezzar has the furnace heated up some ten times hotter than it would normally be heated. So hot that when his servants open and guards open the doors of this furnace to throw these three men in, they are just uh, hit with the heat. It's so overwhelming, they die on the spot. The three men are cast in. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes curious, wondering what is going on with them, and he peers into the furnace. But what he sees is astounding. Not only does he see the three men standing there, but he sees a fourth who is in the furnace. And he's struck. Didn't we throw, he says, didn't we throw three guys in there? How did we get four? I would have said, didn't we throw these men in there? What are they still doing there? (laughs) But he said, we've got an extra one in there. How did that happen? And he tells them, come on out. I mean, it's just amazing to think. He says, come out of that furnace. And they walk out of the furnace. It says their clothes, their turban, their robes, their garments were not singed, were not burned. There was not no smell of smoke on them. And Nebuchadnezzar again is moved to give praise to the God of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the story is told as such. What do we make of this account and this message? In the Brit Hadashah, there are only two places that perhaps make reference to it. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we're told in that great chapter that reflects upon those men and women of great faith that trusted the Lord no matter what they went through. 
we're told that in their behalf, God, for some, God had quenched the fires. Well, we're not told about whom the writer of the Hebrews is speaking, but Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah certainly experienced quenchings of literal fires. Peter, later on in his letter, will write about the, in the New International, it says, the painful trials we endure. But the word literally is the fiery trials we face. I can't help but think that perhaps Peter was thinking of this moment in Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's life when they experienced the very literal fiery trial. But those are the only two places where we read of something that might be in the Brit that reflects on this event. But what do we learn from it? Let me suggest a couple of things. First of all, something about worship. Because the king had commanded everyone to bow down before this statue and worship God. The God of the Babylonians. 